Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... Can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Thanks, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I'm very excited about uh, today's guest. He's a returnee. Um, we last had him on uh, to talk about his, his truly excellent book, American Carnage, which I still think um, is one of the easily one of the best books about the whole trump era uh trivia question uh or answer to a trivia question tim and i actually used to be colleagues a million years ago at at national review when he was a political reporter briefly for us i mean I, it feels briefly to me in retrospect maybe you were there for like eight years or something and i was just <laughs> day drinking so much it just doesn't seem like it um but uh Tim had this boffo piece that a lot of my colleagues and uh, where I were talking about in the Atlantic. We actually talked about it a bit on the Dispatch podcast um, about the state of uh, uh, the evangelical church. Um, let me call it up. How politics poisoned the evangelical church. Um, and so I figured we'd talk about that, but maybe we can cram in some rank punditry as well. Tim, welcome back to The Remnant. Jonah, great to be with you, my friend. Always game for some rank punditry. And uh, yes, my my stint at National Review was a little less than a year. I was uh, I was a bit of a hired gun uh, brought in for the campaign. So uh, yeah, it was brief. You were yeah. you were doing a lot of day drinking, but it was brief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so maybe it's like it's the other way around. It's not like it seemed it it. it it seems so long because I was doing so much day drinking that I just thought you were always around. But anyway, who knows? Uh, the, these things, the, the toll it's taken on the mind from my well, lifestyle. And, and, and the first time we, the first time we met, you may recall, what was in a bar in fact, in, in that it was indeed. Yeah. In that little basement bar in, uh, North Carolina, uh, Chapel Hill, I think. Right. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it was you a were weird there speaking. sort of, yeah. And I was under a, kind of like a corporate retreat kind of hotel. That was the whole I thing. I think was so. Strange. Yeah. It was strange. Yeah. And I just looked over and did a double take and there you were. And so, yeah, in fact, yes, it was, uh, it was an appropriate place given all the day drinking, although this was nighttime, but yeah, it was, it was yeah. great. So, um, Dr. Alberta, why don't you sort of, uh, uh, before we get into the weeds on all of it, um, just sort of, uh, the piece is great. It's also tied in with your own personal experience, um, and upbringing. So why don't you just sort of tell the story of the piece, why you wrote it, why it's significant for you personally, and then we can sort of go off in a million different directions. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, so I had written, uh, you know, with some frequency over the past decade or so about sort of the intersection of uh, American evangelicalism with Republican politics. And typically the focus was on the Republican politics. And, you know, the evangelicalism was viewed through the lens of 
you know, a campaign or a certain candidacy or, uh, you know, a, a grassroots effort of some sort, um, but never necessarily looking uh, in depth at evangelicalism itself and at sort of what I had seen as an evolution, a, a slow but but steady evolution in the church during my lifetime. And this was something that was of a lot of interest to me because I, I grew up in the evangelical church. Uh, I'm a pastor's kid. My dad was the senior pastor uh, of the church in our hometown in Brighton, Michigan. Uh, and, and our denomination was the EPC, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. So um, a, a pretty a pretty conservative uh, theologically and kind of culturally slash politically uh, denomination. And, you know, I had sort of watched in my lifetime as politics, you know, I had a line in the piece where I described this from another pastor, and it, and it rang very true with my experience, that politics had gone from sort of the periphery of church life to the heart of church life uh, in my lifetime. It, 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 there was just sort of a mission creep there that, um, you know, at one point it was just a sermon every year on Right to Life Sunday about abortion and with some, you know, very explicit uh, political partisan undertones. And that sort of would begin to, um, it, it began to snowball a little bit. It, it, it went from just, you know, the, the abortion argument to an argument about something a little bit less biblically explicit, I suppose one might say. Um, at least maybe that was my interpretation. And um, and that just sort of continued. And it wasn't just in, in my home church or from my dad's sermons. Uh, it was just in the culture. And, and you know, my mom worked at the church so, uh, as well. And so I grew up literally physically in the church. I mean, my like summer vacation was spent in the church. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I grew up there with those people and with, you know, other people in our community at other churches. And so it was just something that had always, uh, had always vexed me a bit. And then really, Jonah, I think it was during the Trump years when things started to accelerate and intensify in ways that, that kind of troubled me. And, um, and it wasn't just the presidency of Trump, mind you, it was this combination of, you know, you had the, 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 you know, racial injustice uh, protests and, and with the killing of George Floyd and the conversations about racial reconciliation in the church. And, and that really divided a, a huge swath of the evangelical world. And you had the question of Me Too and sexual abuse, sexual assault and cover-ups and accountability. And that was another huge flashpoint in the evangelical world. Uh, and, and then, you know, I, I think really the single biggest thing is then you had COVID and you had churches closing down and you had you had this fear that was suddenly realized among a lot of evangelicals uh, that sort of uh, the, the big, bad, secular, liberal government was coming for them. And I think that even more so than Trumpism was really the moment that sent, set, set this thing into sort of a, a full tailspin. And you could just see all across the country, uh, you, you would hear stories and in my reporting, I was at churches all over the place, coast to coast, where you would just hear the same things over and over again, that these churches that had been together for 30 or 40, 50 years were suddenly splitting overnight and people were leaving and going to new places. Anyway, that's a long descriptor for you, but but that was really what I wanted to investigate here with my reporting is what exactly is happening on the ground in these places. 
Yeah. So, I mean, uh, I want to read something from the piece in a second, but the, the, the COVID part of it, I think, you know, I, I think a lot of people who did the shutdowns, particularly in the beginning were well-intentioned and I don't buy any to date, any, I don't know of any COVID conspiracies or conspiracy adjacent theories that I buy. Right. But at the same time, the dismissiveness about the real weird damage that the lockdowns and the mask mandates did sometimes irrationally, right? You can blame everybody. It's sort of like there people had irrational responses to irrationally aggressive processes. But regardless, I think historians are going to look back on just some profound upheavals to the culture that were part of it. And I think this fits into it. I also think, I mean, look, we've had, we've had mass shooters before COVID, obviously, tragically, but like this, this evil Cretan in, in Buffalo, part of the reason he got radicalized as he admits in the manifesto is he was just sort of locked in his house, marinating in 4chan garbage for two years. And it just, you know, and I like, you have to think, I know the plural of anecdote isn't data, but all you need is a few more anecdotes of people who have become, who have sort of gotten messed in the head from the COVID lockdowns. And it's going to be, we could have all sorts of problems going, going forward. And, you know, and the, the rate of people just of truancy and not signing up for school anymore is a huge problem. I mean, there's just all sorts of things that I don't think we've really processed that are sort of a bulge in the snake, but um, we can return that in a second. You have this line, which I think captures the piece uh, really well. You say, if this is a tale of two churches, it is also the tale of churches everywhere. It's the story of millions of American Christians who, after a lifetime spent considering their political affiliations in the context of their faith, are now considering their faith affiliations in the context of their politics. And I think that sort of captures the sort of the gist of it is that the it used to be about a little too much chocolate in the peanut butter. And now it's all about all the peanut butter getting into the chocolate, as it were. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. It um, yeah. Um, and so uh, one of the benefits I have of having um, a bunch of colleagues, including David French, but also several uh, refugees from World Magazine is I have a bunch of people at the dispatch who actually know a lot more about the evangelical stuff than I do as a secular Jew from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Um, and so I got a couple of questions from them I wanted to throw at you. Um, yeah. First of all, as I heard you talk about on TV, you are you were talking pretty, I mean, it's pretty obvious in the piece, but you're talking explicitly about the white evangelical church because there are... Um, these there does the same process doesn't seem to be going on in parallel in, in the black church, which is also a robust and serious um, denomination in America, right? Or 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 part of American religion? Yeah. So uh, yeah, the, the the short answer is yes. I mean, the piece is focused on the white evangelical church for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, first and foremost, that, that's that's you know, I'm I, I grew up in the white evangelical church. That's my sort of tradition. That's my subset of American Christendom. Um, and and this sort of political radicalism that is infecting, uh, you know, American Christianity is really most prevalent inside the white evangelical church. I mean, I cite polling in the piece that, you know, looks at everything from, you know, conspiracies that uh, the, the election was stolen from Donald Trump to um, uh, belief that, uh, that that QAnon is real 
to uh, refusal to get the COVID vaccine and belief that the COVID vaccine is dangerous. I mean, the, the, the number one religious group, the number one religious demographic in this country by a mile that believes in all of these things is white evangelicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's what I was focusing on. And I've had a few people say to me, uh, well, you know, the, the black church has been explicitly political for forever. Well, why not? Why not write about them? And to which I've said, you know, both of the things I just said, which is that I'm not, you know, a black evangelical, obviously. And, uh, and also, you know, I'm focusing on this particular strand of sort of political radicalism. Um, but I, you know, beyond that, um, I had another person email me and say, well, you know, what about um, some of these left wing synagogues, you know, preaching, <laughs> preaching politics? And I said, well, I must have missed all the guys marching on the Capitol wearing yarmulkes and with their pitchforks and menorahs, right? Like right. on January 6th. Uh, it's just not something that, that strikes me as anywhere near the sort of existential dilemma as, uh, as what's happening with white evangelicalism. Yeah. And also I, I actually think all of those are perfectly valid things for someone to write articles about. It is not a criticism. I mean, this is sure. Know, we bo- sure. We've, we've both been around the horn writing things for a very long time. And one of the weakest forms of criticism is why didn't you write the piece I wanted you to write rather right. than the piece that you wrote that bothers me. Right. I mean, exactly. I, and sometimes the whataboutism is entirely fair to the extent that like, yeah, that other article that you think I should have written is a good article for someone to write. Maybe I'll write it one day, but it doesn't detract from the merits of the thing I actually wrote. Right. I mean, it's, 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 it's a version of the dumbest form of Twitter, which is why didn't you tweet about what I wanted you to tweet about? Why did you tweet about, you know, what you wanted to tweet about? Right. right. Um, Well, like, like every time somebody writes something about Bo Biden and they're ratioed on Twitter with like, oh, do Jared Kushner next. Right. <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay. Two things can uh, be true. They can both I, be problematic people with serious political baggage, right? You right, know. Right. Um, so another question uh, that I just, a colleague asked me, um, I, I, this is from my Slack, our Slack channel. I, um, I said, you know, ask people what they wanted me to talk to you about. And one said, worth asking if the church is getting caught up in this are ones where people are more recently active in a religious sense, but with longstanding interest in politics. Like are the evangelical voters who supported Trump, but never really attended church and are now going to church are going to church now that there are pastors offering political red meat from the pulpit. Right. So I guess the part of the question is, did the Trump phenomenon actually drive, not just cause people to switch churches as you write about it at quite a, in quite a bit of detail, but it just sort of drove people who didn't really weren't particularly faith driven to show up at essentially political rallies that called themselves religious services. It's a good question. Let me give you a nuanced answer. Um, I think so. The, the, the short answer is, um, not really now there are, I, without question. And I write about this a little bit in the piece, these, these alliances that have formed in the last few years between some of these uh, kind of right-wing evangelical churches and, you know, grassroots organizations locally that are um, sort of explicitly partisan or, or political in their aims. Um, those alliances, because oftentimes the churches are offering their physical space, their sanctuaries to these organizations to come in and hold some event and do uh, their, uh, their, their volunteer training or whatever it may be. Uh, there's no question that that is then bringing in non churchgoers to this church setting. And some of them 
a light bulb is going off and they're saying, oh, I, okay, you know, I could get into this. This is, this, is, uh, this is my kind of Christianity, right? There's no question that that's happening at some scale. From everything I can see, though, Jonah, it's, it's not a huge scale. It's, it's not, um, that is not the preponderance of, of the phenomenon here. What, what I've seen time and time and time again is uh, that actually a lot of these, a, lo- a lot of the folks who are gravitating towards these right-wing churches they have belonged for many, many years, in some cases, many decades, to other churches that were never political at all or were never political enough for, for their taste. Um, but, you know, they'd stuck around anyway. They, they, they liked the preaching. They liked their Bible study. They liked the community there. Uh, it was never something that they it was never a hill that they were going to die. And then, again, these last few years, everything sort of... Um, Everything fell apart in a lot of these churches. And, and, and again, particularly going back to the, the COVID shutdown, you know, I can't stress this point enough, Jonah. I reported from a handful of different churches, uh, different parts of the country, where the, the, the physical shuttering of the church was only four or five weeks. Uh, only in some cases, it was only three or four Sundays that they did not physically meet. And this was at the very beginning of COVID, right? And then they reopened after a month or so, but but a chunk of their congregations never came back because mm-hmm. they viewed it as an act of cowardice, as an act of betrayal, that this was exactly when we needed the church the most and you weren't there for us. And uh, and you can just you can guess where most of those folks wound up. Right. They didn't they didn't join a Methodist congregation somewhere. They, they didn't go Lutheran all of a sudden. Right. Like most of these folks moved to very conservative, very outspoken politically churches, uh, many of them non-denominational, many of them charismatic churches, where there was just this this overt embrace of of partisan politics uh, from the pulpit. And uh, and in those settings, uh, again, a number of them that I visited, when I would talk with people there, frankly, that was part of my hypothesis you know, 15 months ago at the beginning of this project, I expected to find a lot of people who had never been in church before and were, and were suddenly, by sort of this confluence of events, finding themselves in these uh, kind of right-wing churches. I really expected that to be the case more than it was when, in fact, um, the vast, vast majority of the folks I would encounter had been in church for a very long time, and, mm-hmm. and, but they were just relocated. So we should, for the benefit of listeners like me, to butcher the PBS slogan, um, we should do a little clarification on on terminology here, um, because your point about them they, they didn't go become Lutherans or Methodists I vaguely get, but you know, like I, some people, other people might not. And one of the questions actually, uh, some of uh, my colleagues brought up, which is a point that that David French has made as well and who, who really loved your piece um is that a lot of this stuff and again i i could be butchering it because i it is not my vernacular but that the pentecostals are much more into this stuff and pentagon pentecostals and other charismatics if i'm using this correctly are not as um that some of them are are don't even use the evangelical label that there is a schism of sorts there um if I'm butchering that, I apologize to all parties concerned. Um, I probably know more about Zoroastrianism than I do about some of this stuff. Uh, but um, 
can you just sort of lay out the 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 anatomy of these different uh, you know sort of organs of um, of the American church a little bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and you didn't really butcher it at all, Jonah. Uh, you were you were pretty much spot on. I mean, so. Um, I'll, I'll do it briefly t- so as to not put any of your list. I got the Catholics in. figured out. Okay. I know who they yeah, are. The Catholics, <laughs> well, the, Catholics, the Catholics are easy. Don't, don't, don't pat yourself on the back too hard. The, 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 the Catholics are, are roughly divided into the people who are really serious about being Catholic and, uh, the folks who are culturally Catholic. And, uh, I'm sure that's that, uh, that, that 10 second descriptor is going to earn us both a bunch of hate mail after this, uh, publishes. But, having worked uh, at yeah. National Review for twenty years, like, and having married a Catholic, I, I, I feel like I, I, I know where the different groups are. But yeah. anyway, yeah, um, yeah, Catholics. That's a different piece. But but yeah. So so within within the the, the Protestant underneath the the American Protestant umbrella, um, you know, I mentioned charismatic churches. Um, you know, so. You, you could, you could, for, again, for the purposes of this discussion, uh, use, um, you know, charismatics and Pentecostals as sort of interchangeable. Um, many charismatics are not denominational. They don't belong to, you know, they don't uh, affiliate with, um, with, with other charismatic churches, with other Pentecostal churches. Um, but many of the traditions are the same. And you're right. Uh, I have, uh, although I don't think it's a, um, I don't think it's the sort of uh, self-identification crisis within the charismatic community uh, vis-a-vis evangelicalism as it is uh, in the more sort of moderate, dare I say, traditional wing of the, uh, of the American Christian community. Specifically, what I mean by that is it's true, I suppose, that you do have some charismatics who would not readily identify as evangelical, although I don't think that's a huge number. On the flip side of it, you do have, increasingly so, uh, lots of Christians who come from more traditional denominational backgrounds, uh, you know, and, and particularly backgrounds that are not as theologically conservative. So that's why I mentioned, you know, the Methodists, for example, the Lutherans, um, the Episcopalians. Y- you will have folks in those churches more and more who may not be comfortable with the label of evangelical because of the political connotation. Uh, And that's what I tried to get at very early in the piece in in writing about how evangelicalism had really, in my lifetime, uh, morphed from what was understood as kind of a spiritual identity Mm -hmm. to a political identity. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I, I had this, fa- I didn't have time to write about it in the piece, um, but I, I had this fascinating experience at a church where I met with uh, a number of, with the church's leadership and with a number of uh, their members, their longest uh, tenured members, many of them elders in the church. And we had a little ice cream social on a Sunday night. Um, I'd been reporting there for a little while. And, and so this was kind of my time to play Frank Luntz and, and get everybody in a room together and uh, throw out some words and, and get them to kind of disagree and see where the fault lines were. And, and what was so interesting, Jonah, is that the conversation was really kind of slow for a little while. Um, it, folks were, I think, very wary of one another and of saying the wrong thing. And there was obviously some tension beneath the surface in this church 
that was kind of uh, simmering. And so, and I couldn't quite figure out, and I felt like I was failing in this entire exercise. So I finally, I, I paused and I said, okay, let me ask everybody a question. Uh, how many of you would identify yourselves as evangelicals? And there were 30 people in the room and 16 hands went up. And I said, how many of you would not identify? And 14 hands went up. And I said, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Can you all tell me why? Let, for the first batch of you who said yes, go around. And, and, and they all gave a description basically saying, you know, we're called uh, as part of the Great Commission, we're called to evangelize. We're called to go out into the world and, and make disciples for Christ and draw people to him, bring people into the church, uh, grow, the, grow the community of believers. So, that, so yes, I consider myself an evangelical. So it was all very much oriented around the mission of the church, the mission of the gospel, uh, their individual mission as believers. The 14 who didn't identify that way, their explanations up and down the line were, uh, I can't be comfortable using that term anymore because of how, uh, because of what evangelicals have done politically, mm -hmm. because of how they've affiliated themselves with Trump, because of all the scandals going back to Jim and Tammy Faye, because of the, all of the cultural and political attachments, the connotations to evangelicalism that we feel have done more harm to the gospel than good, we are no longer comfortable identifying that way. And I found that to be just, uh, it was like, as a, as a matter of social science, it was just a, a totally fascinating exchange. Mm -hmm. And very quickly from that point, Jonah, uh, the, the conversation started really moving. Because once that initial fault line was sort of established, Everything else we discussed, um, you know, COVID uh, policies, masking and vaccines and, uh, you know, racial reconciliation in the church, gay marriage, all of these other things were neatly cleaved along that initial fault line. One of the things that I'm, you know, one of the things I really appreciated about the piece, I mean, other than the fact that you actually went and did reporting and just didn't look at pew polls or whatever, um, not that polls aren't a valuable piece of evidence, but they don't convey all the information that we need. Um, but you know, you focus on two different pastors. One is sort of a, for in crude terms, a MAGA pastor, right? And his, his flock is growing. Uh, what was it? Brolin is his name? Bolin. Yeah. Bill Bolin, Bolin. Sorry. And, um, and the other one is Brown, uh, pastor Brown, who is, both conservative, right? And in fact, the, the, the MAGA guy is more of a, uh, he's an ex left winger kind of ex hippie, um, which I think is sort of psychologically Im important in some ways, which we can get into. But, uh, and meanwhile, um, Brown is a lifelong small C conservative pro-life guy. Um, and what I sort of find fascinating about it is that it speaks to me as, you know, like my big listeners of this podcast know this, that like my, my big spiel for the last like seven years is you can boil down most journalistic ethics and most ethical questions in our, in the, in our work lives to basically, you know, one, one commandment, don't lie, right? Don't say things that are not true. That doesn't mean you can't be wrong. And it doesn't mean that your opinion can't be contestable, right? I mean, obviously those things are all true, but don't knowingly say things that you don't believe to be true and present them as if they are true. And I, you know, this is what kind of radicalized me in my 
my refusal to go along with the Trump stuff was I just watched people say one thing to me in person and then say a completely different thing in print or on TV. And I was just so disgusted by it because I kind of thought like we all had the same basic rules in my line of work is that you can take whatever hot take position you want. You can be deliberately provocative as long as you clue in the reader that you're taking an extreme position to make a point. But you're not supposed to lie. Right. And like people went around saying that Donald Trump is a brilliant constitutionalist and all these other things. And I just it, it drove me crazy and um, or maybe it drove me sane. Whatever. People will disagree on that. Um, but. Uh, I have particular sympathy for this, this Pastor Brown, uh, I can't remember his first name, uh, who um, doesn't want to talk about politics, but he also thinks that the, one of the key commandments of being a Christian is discernment and, and the, the need to bear truthful witness about things, right? To, to tell the truth. And, um, and so because he pushes back on conspiracy theories and slanders and, and, and that kind of thing, he gets accused of being too political when in reality, what he's trying to do is just focus on the truth. And, but because people are sort of hungry for this sort of politicized infotainment stuff, it makes him seem political by trying to push back on the overly political stuff. And I just think that's a really interesting dilemma for, you know, cause I, I, it, I feel like I've had similar experiences. Um, and then the other part yeah. of it is, is this bowling guy who like, is just pretty honest is like the way you, you fill the pews as you give the people what they want. And it just seems to me that like, there's another analogy in that to our line of work, which is that so much of media these days tells their audiences what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. And like you run into some serious theological trouble when you start just telling the people <laughs> what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear, because there's a whole point about the truth of gospel and, you know, and not, uh, putting your faith in princes. And if you start saying you can put your faith in princes, uh, that kind of pandering can really be corruptive, corrupting to the church. I'm really glad you said that last part, Jonah, because, um, I, I mean, I agree with everything you just said, but, the, but, you know, in our line of work, the stakes are really high, right? We, we, you know, uh, we are so often writing about, uh, you know, some of the most powerful figures in the world and, and, uh, you know, people who have, uh, incredible authority or proximity to authority and, and influence over events that shape history. And the stakes are very high, but I think one would argue, I certainly would, that the stakes are even higher inside a place of worship. Uh, if you are, if you are a, uh, a Bible believing Christian, and uh, and and if you are to really study what the scripture says, it's you know it's very clear that uh, you know we don't put our faith uh, in princes, and and that this world is is a fleeting, forgettable uh, place that that is meant to be uh, sort of infinitesimal in comparison to eternity and to all that awaits, and and. The problem, I think, is one of when you talk about discernment and truth, which are obviously kind of the big, bold themes of, of the piece. 
the problem really, I think, can be boiled down to credibility, mm -hmm. right? It, uh, it, it's it's the, the reason that this pastor, Ken Brown, at his church is, is struggling and, and is really decided to kind of lay it all on the line in confronting uh, his, his people, his flock there at his church, uh, is, is not because he's annoyed by their political points of view, uh, not, not because, um, you know, he disagrees with them on certain things, although he certainly does, but he views their credibility as Christians as being significantly diminished when they are in the public uh, sphere, uh, you know, on social media, uh, out in the community, even inside the church. You know, over coffee between uh, between activities, you know, after the after the service concludes, um, giving voice to things that are not true, uh, and 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 uh, you know, fermenting falsehood, as he wrote in the piece. It, it, and of course, I revisit this time and time again. But really, at the very end of the piece, especially when I'm sitting down uh, with the other pastor, with Bill Boland. And I'm documenting to him, uh, we'd spent uh, a few months at that point having some conversations, and uh, I'd been listening to a lot of his sermons, following his Facebook page, and I've been documenting all these things that were just wrong, some of which, you know, the, the word lie is obviously loaded because it assumes that he knows something, but at least some of these things were, were clearly untrue when he said mm -hmm. them, and he's a smart enough guy, I had to assume that, 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 the, he, that these are lies and that these are falsehoods, and that he was sharing them with his people. And I asked him after one thing in particular, just like this flagrantly, just egregiously wrong thing that he posted on social media. And I, and I told him, I showed him the evidence. I said, this is, this is not right. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, I, I, I realized that after the fact. But it was still active on his Facebook page even during that conversation. And I said, you know, doesn't this worry you uh, it, that if you're getting stuff like this wrong, then people might wonder, well, is he getting the much bigger stuff wrong? You know, the stuff like sanctity and salvation and uh, eternal life. Um, you know, doesn't doesn't your credibility as a witness for Christ, as a teacher of truth, doesn't it suffer when you're objectively egregiously wrong on some of this other stuff? And and he just and he said, no, 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 I no, it's not. I I just I you know he said I disagree. I, I make a I make a distinction between you know, political statements and spiritual statements. And, you know, that's okay. So he's, he's free to make that distinction. But I do think that uh, out in the broader culture, part of the reason that, and this is documented over, you know, I didn't just read Pew polls, as you said earlier, but, you know, read some polling, and it is clearly documented over a period of decades that the, the, the perception of the confidence in the American church is 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 in free fall and this is part of the reason uh, because i think there is a serious credibility crisis uh, for a lot of folks who look at the uh, alliances that the evangelical movement has made and the sort of shameless opportunism and the transactionalism and the willingness to go along with things that they know are not true and so the outside world looks at that and says, well, if they're, if they're, if they're willing to abide this thing that they know is not true, then how, why would I ever trust them about this thing that they swear is true, this other mm -hmm. thing? Um, so, I mean, as much as 
I, I stand by all the stuff I said about, you know, it's sort of a cheap criticism about the article you didn't write. You know, one of the things uh, that a bunch of people, not my colleagues, but like I, on Twitter, I asked people if they had questions and um, proving once again, it's stupid to ask people um, <laughs> if they have questions. Not that I didn't get some smart ones, but it just it's so difficult to pick out the weed from the chaff on some of these things. I particularly like the guy who says you'll never ask this on your quote unquote podcast. Um, he put podcast in air quotes because like, <laughs> apparent, like, like I, I, I get it when people do that or like your so-called journalism, right? At least like there's an idea of, of like the ideal of what journalism is and, and why you would put it in square scare quotes. But like, is this not a podcast because you disagree with something? But anyway, I just thought that was really funny. Um, but you know, a bunch of people were like, well, you know, and again, it's, I think there's some truth to this that part of the problem that you get with the evangelical side of things or the conservative conservative side of things, you know, on, uh, in American Christianity is a response to the politicization of uh, the left side of American Christianity, right? And that you have, and this is, this again is a perfectly useful analog for the same kind of culture war stuff in our schools, in, in corporate America and in, in, in politics in general is that you have one side doing something that triggers the other side that gives them a permission structure to trigger the other side. Right. And it, and it sort of never ends, but like you have this definition, or I just say definition. You talk a lot about keeping politics or the, the challenge of keeping politics out of the pews, but some political issues just definitely do have, legitimate religious resonance. And I'm not saying that you have to pick one side or the other. I don't know God's will, but like the issue of transgender, you concede the issue of abortion, right? There are lots of issues. Um, you know, you're talking about the, 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 the denomination that's going to be splitting in half over gay pastors, right? I mean, I, I'm whatever my own personal views. I mean, I, I'm perfectly at peace with gay marriage and all of these things. And I think churches should be allowed to do what they, they want to do. But like, I don't think it's illegitimate to think that you can't like, let me put it this way. I don't think it's illegitimate for the Catholic church to say, uh, they shouldn't have female priests. Right. Um, it's not my fight, but I don't think it's an illegitimate. I don't think there are illegitimate views on either side of that. How do you, you know, how do you sort of, what's the line drawing process here? Do you think? Because, uh, lots of people like, say, oh, look what these woke pastors are doing and saying, and look how they sort of, they defended violence with the Black Lives Matter riots and all these kinds of things. And like, if I were attending a church and I had a, a clergyman, you know, defending some of that stuff, I'm not sure I would want to be there. Um, and I, so like, how do you, you know, like, how do you distinguish, what is the, what is the course of discernment between a political issue that is rightly something that crosses the theological blood brain barrier. And what is one that doesn't? Yeah. So this is a super important question, Jonah. And, and I'll just give the disclaimer up front that I don't know that I'm the person best qualified to answer it. Uh, I would love to have a couple of, uh, you know, big, big theological brains in the room with us and have, and kick this around a little bit, but I'll give you my best whack at it. Just, just from my own personal perspective as a, as a Christian and as a journalist who spent a lot of time working on these things. 
so I don't, you know, as far as where the lines are drawn, I, I don't know that there are any lines to be drawn necessarily, but I guess, uh, I, I think probably you need uh, a ground rule or two in place. And maybe the first ground rule is just observing very simply that, you know, God does not play for or belong to or own stock in either of these political parties, mm -hmm. right? Um, I, and I think, and I'm not being cute when I say that, I, I think that that is sort of the root of a lot of this, because um, it, it, if you were to assume that, uh, that the Almighty is uh, more aligned with your political causes than, than, than with the other tribes, um, what it then sort of very naturally leads you to do is to selectively apply scripture to the things that you care about. And sort of ignore anything that doesn't support what you care about. It's it's sort of like Martin, every Martin Luther King Jr. Day when everybody posts a Martin Luther King Jr. quote to Twitter that sort of supports their personal or political point of view, right? And it's kind of a choose your own adventure thing. And what you see inside churches is, you know, I had this conversation with a gentleman um, yeah, back early this year, uh, we were having coffee and he was saying, you know, I, I, I just don't really want politics in the church at all. And uh, he's a very conservative guy. And I said, uh, well, you know, um, and then he said, except for abortion, I think that's, that's, he said, I think that is a uh, kind of an explicitly political, uh, issue and which I've heard that plenty from a lot of different folks. And I said, okay, well, just game this out with me for for a minute, just playing devil's advocate, no pun intended. Um, you know, what about um, poor people? What about poverty? I, you know, uh, he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I, you know, Jesus spent more time talking about poverty than just about anything else uh, in, the, in, the, in the Gospels, right? Um, and he said, uh, yeah, maybe, I guess it would depend sort of how poor. I said, okay, what about um, refugees? Uh, uh, what about immigrants? said, ah, yeah, I wouldn't want to really get into that. That gets a little bit too political. So we sort of went up and down the list. And by the time the discussion was done, he said, well, he said, I'll give you that. It, it almost has to be an all or nothing thing, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And I said, I don't know if it has to be an all or nothing thing. Again, I'm not smart enough to, to, to know the answers to this. Um, there's obviously quite a slippery slope involved. You do have uh, some churches that are um, just really, really, uh, really outspoken on just one or two sort of pet causes, if you will, uh, and then silent on the rest of it. You have other churches that try to be a little bit more holistic with regard to uh, with with regard to what Jesus said and what he did, and kind of let the chips fall where they may. And then you have other churches that are are uh, really careful not to sort of say anything that could be perceived as like I had a pastor a while back tell me that he had made some comments about the beauty of God's creation and our stewardship thereof and a bunch of angry emails after the sermon accusing him of being a tree hugger. And he was mm -hmm. like, he was like, Whoa. And this is a guy who's pretty careful to stay away from any of the political stuff. And he's like, he said that, you know, that just reaffirmed to him how incredibly careful you have to be. Like he's already walking on eggshells and here he has this sort of unwitting slip up and suddenly he's a, a Greenpeace activist. So it's, it's, I don't know that there are any lines. Uh, I, I think there, again, I would say the one ground rule should be in place. I'll, I'll finish here, Jonah. I think that um, probably 
as far as uh, ground rules or lines to draw, uh, however you want to think about it. The pastors that I've spent time with who have really reflected on this a lot and, and who I think are doing a really commendable job, whatever their personal politics are, whatever the politics of their congregations are, whatever approach they've taken, and it's not a uniform thing, um, it's not a binary thing, there's, there's, there's a lot of different ways to approach this. I think the, the guys who are doing this right, uh, they are being very intentional about, um, about preaching the gospel and doing it in the context of the gospel. Uh, in other words, not trying to, uh, n- not being very overt and, and, and really sort of, um, you know, jamming it down your throat, making the political points from the pulpit, and also not doing a lot of winking and nodding and sort of speaking in not so subtle metaphors, trying to connect, you know, the, 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 the message from the gospel that Sunday to the culture war or to the political fight happening just outside the church. Instead, they're uh, being very shrewd in, in preaching what, uh, on, on whatever the substance is from the pulpit and not being coy to sort of avoid connecting it to what's going on in the outside world, but basically presenting it to their people and challenging them, challenging them to take that lesson and apply it however they see fit, right? And, and, I, and in other words, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's stripping away any of the sort of, um, you know, manifest political connotations from scripture and presenting scripture as what it is, right? As what these preachers say to their people every week, that this is, that this is the holy word of God and you should treat it as such. Don't, don't pollute it by trying to inject politics into it. Don't try and tie it in uh, cleverly to some issue du jour. Just just preach the word to your people. Make sure they understand that it has eternal uh, implications. And when they leave, trust that they can be discerning enough to understand its application out in the real world without having to cram it down their throats. Yeah, so, I mean, we, we can... I want to do a little bit of rank punditry, but, um, uh, the, the, the thing that like sort of, there are two things that sort of popped out at me in this, in your piece that pinged my sort of, uh, intellectual historian portfolio. One is I had not really realized that Paul Weirich and those guys were post-millennialists. Um, and I know a little bit about that. I don't want to like conjure my friend, David Bonson, who will come on and lecture me about all this stuff for an hour. But, um, uh, uh, the social gospel movement of the progressives in the beginning of the 20th century was very post-millennial. It was, it, it, it really believed that you could use the state to bring about the, um, uh, the kingdom of heaven on earth, you know, in, in this life, not in the reserve for the afterlife and all of that. And I think it's very it, 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 I'm a little embarrassed that I didn't realize that those guys, knowing what I know about conservatism and knowing what I know about this stuff, that I didn't really put those those things together with Wyrick and those guys. Um, and then, you know, the other thing yeah. that sort of comes out to me in the piece is there's um, one of my favorite books. It's a it's a bit of a stem winder. Um, is this book by the guy Julian Benda called "The Treason of the Intellectuals," and it was written in the in the tw- I want to say late teens, early twenties, he kind of predicted world war two. And 
part of his argument was it was this sort of like tirade about the corruption of the intellectual class, which the, in the original French, it's called the treason of the clerks to include priests and, you know, sort of the thought leaders as, as, Sancti as, as, as smug people would call themselves today. And his, um, and one of his big indictments was of, uh, Christian leaders and nationalists who, um, would claim, you know, all these different isms would claim Jesus as the first progenitor of their ism. So you had all these people saying, oh, Christian was the, uh, Christ was the first nationalist or Christ was the first eugenicist or Christ was the first socialist or, and you can go down a very long list. And it seems to me that like what we witnessed, particularly during the, the, the Trump era, um, is a real version of that. And what Bendo was saying is that what has happened, the, the, the fundamental treason of the intellectuals was, uh, they'd committed themselves to the organization of political hatreds and they, uh, drafted any causes or ideas and subordinate subordinate them to their political hatreds and when you look at the stuff that like charlie kirk and jerry falwell jr and those guys did in the service of sort of a maga con job to the role of christianity in, in public life I, I can't get angry on behalf of Christians because it's not my job to be angry on, on behalf of Christians, but the way in which my understanding of what is best about Christianity got subordinated to like the Falkirk center at Liberty university and all that kind of thing is so grotesque. Um, it feels like, you know, the selling of indulgences or something to me. And yet, uh, if you criticize when I criticize those guys, I get accused of being anti-Christian by people. And, um, it's just all very, very weird. Anyway, I did, I just wanted to get that out there. You can respond to it or not, or we can just move straight into the rank punditry part. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I'm, I'm angry. I, I, I had a, uh, I, I, I had lots of interesting emails, uh, over the past week and a half or so since the piece published and, um, also got some nice ones and people, uh, you know, saying, yeah, I've been trying to figure out what's going on in my church. This this kind of really hit home. And of course, I got a lot of notes from pastors who are sort of deeply disillusioned at this point, some of whom have, have retired from preaching and sharing their stories with me. But I got some really angry notes and some really kind of uh, ugly notes from people. And, and one in particular was from a woman who uh, uh, attended my, my home church um, and said basically said you know your dad would be ashamed of you yada yada and said you know you sound so angry and, and i thought i am angry uh i i'm angry because exactly exactly what you just said a minute ago john i mean you, you put it perfectly that that the 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 purest most beautiful uh, most uh sort of selfless and, and self-sacrificial parts of Christianity have been tossed in the back seat or even tossed out of the vehicle altogether by the, uh, this sort of, uh, this, these forces of, of nationalism and, and tribal identity and, um, and, paranoia and this 
you know, chicken little sky is falling. This is the last stand for Christian America as we know it. Uh, you know, therefore, you know, the, the ends are always going to justify the means. There was, I mean, there's just this sort of existential hysteria that has hijacked American Christianity. And, and the shame of it is, I, you know, I was having this conversation with someone just the other day. As with so many other dilemmas we face in American life um, in examining all of the sort of breakage and the fracturing of different communities and institutions, it's often, you know, the loudest voices who are, uh, who are winning or, and they are wildly disproportionate uh, to what their numbers really are. And, and I think that that's true here. I, I, I don't think that it's anywhere near a majority of American Christians or anywhere near a majority of white evangelical Christians who are extremists in their views and who are allowing the politics of Trumpism and vaccine denialism and Q to sort of subjugate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, but it's enough of them and they have enough, they have enough of a voice. They have enough of a platform. They have enough kind of organizational savvy and kind of cultural leverage points at their disposal to, uh, to, to really throw this thing into turmoil. And that's what they've done. And that does make me angry. It makes me angry uh, on a, on a number of different levels. And I, you know, maybe that, maybe I'd be, uh, better served in, in, in suppressing that anger a little bit because apparently it came through in the piece. Uh, but yeah, I am angry. No, as, as someone who's made a living off and writing angry, your piece did not come across as particularly angry to me, but you know, <laughs> um, more, more, I mean, honestly more, more sort of sad and heartbroken yeah, than angry. That's right? the way I came, you came across to me and, and look, I mean, it, part of it, I guess part of the point is, is like, and again, it's analogous to conservatism is that there's nothing more annoying than, um, people speaking on behalf of your cause wrongly, right? Because then you, there are people out there who think that they're speaking for you and, you know, and, you know, they're not. Um, and, and yet there's this, this sort of popular front tribal attitude that says, no, 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 you can't disagree internally. All of disagreement has to be focused outward, which is basically saying you got to make room for these people. And, um, you know, I, I see it more in like my fights with people about like the alt-right, like, you know, I spent 20 years at national review with, you know, V dare readers sending me emails talking about how the world would be better off if all of my family had been put in ovens. Right. And it's like, seems to me like as just as a political proposition or an intellectual one or a moral one, I don't want to hang out with these people. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't want them as like part of my team. And people are like, you know, well, why are you making a fuss about that? You should be making a fuss about, you know, what the left is doing. And I make fuss about the left does all the time. But like it, there's a, just a different moral urgency when people are speaking in your name or that you're associating with you. And it's just it's an important distinction to make. All right, very quickly, because uh, I know we, we, we don't want to keep you past the time we told you we would, but um, um, broad brushstrokes, where do you see, like, the, uh, uh, I don't want to talk about the midterms per se, but, like, you know, the future of the GOP. Do you think, do you think Trump's going to run? 
do you think if he runs, uh, a bunch of people don't? Are we going to have another collective action problem of a 16-way race that almost guarantees Trump would win? Um, what do you think the next couple of years look like? You know, yeah, it's it's interesting, uh, Jonah. It's it's sort of uh, so. First of all, I, I do think he'll run. I mean, I I could be wrong on that. Just my my general sense from uh, everything I know about the man and uh, everything I know about some of the people close to him who are in his ear. Uh, just it, it just all adds up to you know he can't he can't live without this. I mean, just as recently as uh, a week ago, I was talking to a pretty pretty prominent, pretty plugged in Republican who had just had a conversation with Trump uh, the day before, uh, and who said uh, you know that they were that he invited him down to Mar-a-Lago uh, so they to to get ready for the big one. Uh, quote unquote, uh, and this was in the context of some primaries unfolding here in 2022. And he said, "You know, get down here so we can talk about the big one, right? 2024." And that's pretty consistent with what I've been hearing from other folks as well. That it's just that it's. Li- listen, I mean, this is a guy who uh, who sort of stews and marinates every day in mm-hmm. what happened in 2020. Uh, all of his conversations, his relationships, like it's not, you know. Like he goes out and plays golf, I guess, but but otherwise, this is not someone who you know. Um, like sometimes uh, somebody in their seventies who gets out of politics, like they say they want to go spend time with their grandchildren, and they actually want to go spend time with their grandchildren. That's what they're mm-hmm. going to go do. Trump's not going to go spend time with his grandchildren. I mean, he's yeah. you know, and of course now I'll get hate mail from people saying, "Oh, how dare you say he's not a good grandfather?" I just th- that's not how the man is wired. Um, he he wants to be front and center. He wants to be in the arena. And I suspect that he will be. Now, the, the question really is, you know, back in 2020, uh, no Republican was willing to step forward and challenge him mano y mano. And of course, mano y mano is probably the only way that someone stops him from winning the nomination. Because once you get to a point where there are two or three or four challengers, and certainly anywhere north of three, I would argue, the the anti-Trump vote gets diluted to the point where he can win pretty easily with a plurality, mm-hmm. which is what he did for the most part in 2016, of course. It wasn't until mid to late March of 2016 when the field had winnowed down to three uh, and Kasich was barely breaking single digits uh, that, that Trump started topping 50 percent. Trump was winning all of those primaries in 2016 with somewhere between 26 and 35 percent of the vote. So It'll be interesting to see whether or not a handful of these different folks throw their their hats in the ring. Um, obviously, DeSantis gets the most ink, gets the most buzz. Um, but I think there's a real question about whether he has the stomach for a fight with Trump. Um, mm-hmm. There are there are lingering questions that. Uh, that that continue to haunt him, and I suspect would continue to haunt him about his inability to have any continuity with a political organization. Uh, he's turned through staffers at sort of a prodigious clip. He's, he's, um, he, he's got a kind of a trail of, uh, of disgruntled former employees. A lot of people didn't like working for him, don't like him personally. And that's not just a cosmetic problem for a politician. Uh, that's, that's something that speaks directly to your sort of uh, organizational capacities and your ability to build out a really, really good team of loyal people who can help you win a national campaign. 
And so I, I think DeSantis uh, has some issues he would have to work through. And then look, I mean, some of the other folks who we talk about, you just kind of go up and down the line, uh, whether it's, you know, Nikki Haley or whether it's Ted Cruz or um, uh, Tom Cotton, uh, you know, I'm obviously leaving out a dozen names, but, you know, every single one of these people has at least one or two huge asterisks attached to, to their name. And, and some of it relates to just sort of raw political talent. Uh, some of it relates to their ability to raise money. Uh, but I think much of it comes back to just sort of how many of these folks had already kind of bent the knee to Trump and kind of subjugated themselves to him and will find themselves in a position where they've either been too loyal to run against them or they've sort of wavered in their loyalty, but then gone back on it. I mean, like Nikki Haley is a perfect example who's taken every imaginable uh, stance vis-a-vis Trump that one can take. And so if she were to run against him, how does that play? It's just not clear to me what it looks like. I mean, you know, I, I wrote a couple of months ago uh, about Will Hurd when he released his book. And a lot of people sort of laughed me off of Twitter for, for uh, suggesting that Hurd could run and could potentially put together kind of a, a dark horse, long shot campaign. But at least with Hurd, there's uh, sort of, I think, a clearer, uh, I, I, I certainly would not go to Vegas and put your money on him. but I. I with somebody like that who sort of comes from a, a bit of a cleaner separation from Trump and is running a bit of a more asymmetrical campaign against Trump, uh, maybe somebody like that emerges, Jonah. But at this point, I think that if you're a realist, you have to look at this and say, A, yes, he probably runs. And B, if he runs, then yes, he's probably the nominee. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm totally with you on the crowded field gives you Trump thing, right? I mean, this is the point from... 2016 it's sort of on the bingo card um for dispatch podcasts because we called the belling the cat problem right it goes back i think to aesop where it's in every mouse's interest to put a bell on the cat cat but it's in no individual mouse's interest to be the one to put the bell on it and um and so let's in 2016 you just had one candidate after other using you know Trump as a blocking tackle to take care of their opponents without actually taking on Trump until it became too late to do anything about Trump. And I think that collective action pros- problem is real. I'm I'm not sure. I mean, you might be right, uh, but I'm not sure you're right about the, if you were loyal to Trump, you can't run against him now argument. I mean, I think it depends on the personalities because like Mike Pence is going to run, right? I- I'm not a huge Mike Pence fan. But no one can say he wasn't a loyal Trump surrogate until January 6th. And um, I think Pompeo certainly wants to run. Um, And I think those guys can sell the idea of being, you know, one of the, let me put it this way. One of the really interesting things I think that is emerging, particularly out of Pennsylvania, is that Trump is essentially the establishment now. And that MAGA is a distinct thing from Trump loyalty, right? You know, Kathy Barnett saying uh, the MAGA movement is bigger than Trump. You know, he he transitioned to our values. We didn't transition to his. Um, you have a lot of candidates who are Trumpy or MAGA-y, but who didn't get Trump's endorsement, you know? And it seems to me that, look, I, I don't like this phenomenon, but at the same time, it it's, you just look at Georgia with Brian Kemp and, and all that, Kemp sounds pretty Trumpy, except for the fact that he's not a Trump loyalist, right? And he's going to win. 
And so it seems to me that it is possible that that needle is threadable. The question, which I think uh, sort of hinges on your point and is a good one, is is all that different if Trump is actually running in a race, right? And it's not just sort of like, I like Mehmet Oz, so you got to vote for Mehmet Oz. It's like, you got to vote. For, if you like me, you got to vote for me. And that might change everything. And that might be the reason why you're right and I'm wrong. But, and then the other complicating thing is everyone wants a fighter and Trump in a, you try to game out how a debate works where Trump says, I'm the fighter you need, blah, 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 blah. And then Pompeo or somebody says, yeah, but you lost. And, and you had your shot. And then he says, yeah, but it was stolen from me. And then what does Pompeo say? Either it, no, it wasn't, or yeah, it was, but you didn't fight hard enough. I mean, then it becomes, you can go down a really dark tunnel towards crazy town about what happens in the GOP then. And it kind of blows everything up because normally in politics, if you lose, you don't run again. And, and if you do run again, um, the charge against you is you had your shot and you lost. But by saying that the thing was stolen from him, it just scrambles all the wiring for all that. And it's very hard for me to game out. Yeah, so this is where the punditry truly does become rank, but I'm, I'm all here for it, uh, Jonah. <laughs> let's, let's, let's game this out a little bit because I think the last point you made is really the salient one. When you think about uh, a lot of these local uh, races, statewide races happening and primaries, um, the, the litmus test in many of them is, do you believe that the election was stolen, yes or no, right? It's, it's sort of a barrier to entry for anybody who answers that question the wrong way. We've seen that all over the country. And I've got to think that uh, whoever winds up running uh, in 2024 uh, alongside Trump, assuming he runs, uh, whether it's Pence, whether it's Pompeo, whether it's Cruz, whether it's Cotton or, or DeSantis, some combination of other folks. Um, you remember in the very first debate in the 2016 uh, Republican primary election cycle, the very first question, Brett Baer asked everyone on stage in Cleveland. He said, um, because this was... Um, when Trump had been making noise about running a third party campaign, if the RNC tried to rig things against him. So the very first question of the very first primary debate, Brett Baer said, I'd like to see a show of hands. Is there anybody on this stage tonight who will not commit to supporting the eventual nominee of the Republican Party? And Trump is the only guy who puts his hand up, right? And that's when the reality show really began in earnest. Mm -hmm. And you could see a similar question being posed in the first Republican debate. You know, can I see if I was the, if I was moderating, I will say that I have moderated one presidential debate in my life. Uh, I may never be invited back to do another. But if I were moderating it, you can bet dollars to donuts. That'd be my first question. As a show of hands, can you all please tell me, does anybody here not believe that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump? Right. Or, or, or maybe phrase it a different way. Does anybody on this stage believe, can I see a show of hands, does anybody believe that Joe Biden was legitimately elected president of the United States? Right. And away we go. Because to your point, Jonah, if nobody raises their hand, if, if nobody is willing to break from Trump on that message, then how can any of them effectively make the argument that it's not his turn anymore? Right. Yeah. That 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 you had your chance and you lost and now it's time to, to exit stage left and let's move the party forward. If, in fact, they all agree with the premise that the election was stolen and that Donald Trump was cheated from the presidency, then isn't it isn't it his nomination to to how, how could you how could you argue that the nomination would not sort of 
fairly belong to him, right? Mm-hmm. That it is still his party. Uh, so it's a, it's a really, it is a dark, uh, it is a dark tunnel to, to take people down, but I think it's one that we could, uh, it's, it's not uh, far-fetched at all. Yeah. A friend of mine was telling me about, um, I didn't see it. So if I'm, if I'm getting it wrong, I'll we'll put a, a correction, but apparently Mastriano, this guy who just won the nomination in Pennsylvania. Uh, he did, a. uh, talk radio or podcast interview immediately afterwards and they were talking about how great it was and how awesome it'll be and what a great governor he'll be and yada 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 and then uh as my friend explained it the interviewer says and we'll have 20 electoral votes in our pocket or something like that and like if you know like like I get it's a binary choice when you're talking about president of the United States. I mean, I reject it, but I understand the argument about it. Right. You know, I understood it in 2016 to be sure. Like, you know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, uh, man for all seasons, you know, the price of your soul, but for whales, you know, like the idea, like you got to vote for Mastriano in Pennsylvania. Um, when this guy is, is all but shouting from the rooftops that he is going to, play games with, um, you know, stealing an election, you know, in favor that he will not consider any election that Donald Trump or the Republican doesn't win to be legitimate. And that's a scary thing for a Republican, you know, governor for a governor to say, um, that stuff is going to get worse before it gets better. It seems to me. And, um, and I, and it's very, that wild card makes the primaries even more hard to kind of game out. Yeah, it does. I mean, talk about saying the quiet part out loud. You've got Republicans all over the country who are kind of winking and nodding at voters saying that, you know, never again uh, will we allow an election to get stolen. But yeah, 20 electoral votes. I mean, it, it's uh, it's something. It's really something. And, and, and uh, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't say, you know, we're six months out from the midterms. Uh, some things can change, but most of the fundamentals are pretty well baked in at this point. Um, economy starting to lag, recession around the corner, inflation through the roof, gas prices suck, food prices suck. Uh, you know, there's a lot of angst, a lot of uncertainty in the country. Uh, and that doesn't even get into, you know, crime and immigration and all these other things, right? Um, so on paper, all of these fundamentals are are squarely in the Republican Party's favor and the wind is at their back and there's no way that they should do anything less than route the Democrats at the polls in November. Right. They've done everything we know now, everything we know historically about the, the patterns of these things. And yet, here you have Republicans in some places, uh, you know, in Pennsylvania, in my home state of Michigan, where you have, uh, you know, uh, election fraud conspiratists uh, on, the, on the statewide ballot now for Attorney General and Secretary of State. And this is happening in some other places as well, and it will continue to happen as the Arizona primary season hot mess, plays out. Yeah. Arizona is a complete hot mess. Uh, you could see Republicans snatch defeat from the jaws of victory here in some of these in some of these races by nominating people who are nuts, mm-hmm. for for lack of a better way of putting it. And um, and that would really be something. I I, I don't think that. There's anything the Republican Party could do at this point to uh, to sabotage the takeover of the House of Representatives. I mean, the margins are just too small, and Democrats are on defense in way too many seats. And and even if even if Republicans were to nominate uh, election conspiracy people, 
in all of these races, dozens and dozens of them, I still think that they'd, they'd have enough of a margin where they're going to take over the House. But in a lot of these statewide races in places like Michigan and Pennsylvania, Arizona, elsewhere, there's, there's I think, a, a, a real hope now among Democrats that the Republican overreach here, uh, th- this belief that the, that the environment is so good for Republicans that they can nominate anybody they want and still win, that's, uh, I think that's going to be tested. And I actually do think that Democrats are probably going to, to win a few of those races that they shouldn't otherwise win. And in fact, what, 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 the, what the net result of it will also be, Jonah, is that you're going to have, I was just having this conversation with a really smart Republican in Michigan last week, you're, and he's running a, uh, he's involved in a, uh, uh, what's going to be a very hot congressional race here, very, very tight. Uh, and, and he was saying, listen, the margins down ballot are really going to be affected here because the, 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 the statewide nominee for AG and for Secretary of State on the Republican side, these are people who are unfit for office, mm-hmm. just, just objectively. And you're going to see anywhere from you know, maybe as small as 3 3.5% to maybe as much as you know, 8 or 9% of kind of moderate independent, center-left, center-right, however you want to view them voters, there's no registration here, but you're going to see some not insignificant chunk of people who would have otherwise been predisposed to voting Republican this fall, they're going to vote Democrat. And they might vote Democrat all the way down the ballot. And if they do, the people who are going to be punished by Republicans nominating some of these crazy people are not just the crazy people themselves, but Republicans farther down the ballot. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, uh, this is wishful thinking, I'm sure. But when we think about the long game of this and, and and things getting worse before they get better, maybe that's what starts the long road to getting better is the fact that not crazy Republicans down the ballot are suffering because of the actions and the words of these crazy Republicans. And maybe it's those people who finally draw a line in the sand and say, OK, enough is enough. We've got to get back control of this thing because it's it's just it's just doing too much damage and again that's probably wishful thinking it might be it might not be you know as as edmund burke says example is the school of mankind and he will learn it no other sometimes you just got to show people the folly of their mistakes but on the other hand i've been saying for you know it's basically goldberg's rule of politics which is that the best explanatory theory it's not it's not perfect but it's the best one we've got for explaining both Democrat and Republican behavior over the last few years is both parties are just secretly determined to be minority parties. Right. Yes. I mean, like Joe Biden, I, you know, I mean, we, I know we're running long, but like Joe Biden could have governed as could have hugged Joe Manchin and governed as the return to normalcy president that he implicitly campaigned on and made the Re- democratic party, basically a majority party. If they could get buy-in from the base, for years to come, but he didn't do that, right? The Republicans, I mean, like Mitch McConnell is open to all sorts of legitimate criticism and I'm not here to defend him, but he is a grown up, right? And he kind of does understand in a sort of cold calculating way that it's really dumb to nominate really bad candidates. And yet the Republican party is determined to not in state after state nominate dumb candidates and, and embrace issues that turn off more voters than attract. And I think it has to do with the role of primaries and Fox news and cable news in general, but that's, that's a subject for another remnant, but it is just amazing how 
like you're like, why are they doing this? And the only explanation that really has any teeth half the time is, oh, it's because secretly they want to be a minority party. And it's like, oh, that makes sense. You, know? <laughs> you and I may have you and may you and I may have noodled on this before, Jonah, but it is it is a just a relentless, ruthless race to the bottom. Uh, yeah. There is this crazy. I mean, and you may recall, I think it was the last time I was on your podcast. You and I discussed how I, I, I said to you, um, because I think it was late in 2020, it was probably right before the election. But I think I said to you that the worst thing that could happen to a President Joe Biden would be to have narrow control of the Senate. That's right. right? You did. The worst, yeah, I quoted the worst you thing a bunch that could happen about that. to his presidency. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and that, of course, that's exactly what happened, right? Because he he has a minority in name only. It's a, uh, a mino. Uh, it's, he doesn't have any... So he doesn't have any margin. So it, it's if if in fact, and I'm not saying that his political prospects would be uh, sort of incandescent at this point, but you do have to think that um, if Biden had been given the sort of plausible deniability of a 51-49 Republican Senate, and he said to his people, "Look, I you know I've got to work with Mitch," and then he and he and his old pal Mitch sort of went behind closed doors and, and tried to get some things done. I've got to suspect that um, the Democratic party is better positioned politically, maybe significantly better positioned than they are today. And, uh, but, but, you know, you look up and down the board and, and, you know, I, I don't want to tease out too much of a reporting project that I'm in the middle of right now, but it's sort of focused on exactly this thing is like, how is it that this democratic party in the face of an authoritarian, curious QAnon loving, uh, Republican base that is poised yet again to nominate the most polarizing person in the, in the world. How is it that they are uh, backpedaling? How is it that they're playing defense? How is it that they're about to cede control of the, probably the house and the Senate this November? It's it's, and, and all of these state house positions across the country, it's, it's sort of unthinkable um, except that it's not that unthinkable because we've seen the Republican party do it in the very recent past. And we'll probably see them do it again in a couple of years and just, you know, uh, back and forth we go. All right. I, we've gone long. I could do this all day. Uh, I hope you come back for rank punditry. And certainly when you're done with your next reporting project, you have an, you have an open invitation to come back on anytime you like. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, Tim Alberta, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. And I uh, hope to see you again. Yeah, it was fun, Jonah. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, Tim Bel- Tim Alberta has left the studio. Um, I anticipate getting a, a a diverse set of responses about today's podcast. I I, um, I look forward to some of them, um, but I liked him a lot, um, and I'm glad we got to get in some rank punditry. Um, I have many more thoughts about a lot of this stuff, but I got to do a solo uh, remnant in the next twelve hours, so I'll probably save them for that. Um, thanks to everybody, uh, for tuning in and, um, the, uh, 500th remnant is coming down the pike pretty soon. Very exciting. And, um, other than that, I'll just see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.